Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Melissa Agnes, author of Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. Melissa is a leading authority on crisis preparedness, reputation management, and brand protection. She is a coveted speaker, commentator, and advisor to some of today's leading organizations faced with the greatest risks. As a strategic advisor and keynote speaker, Melissa Agnes has worked with NATO, ministries of foreign affairs and defense, financial firms, technology companies, healthcare organizations, cities and municipalities, law enforcement agencies, global nonprofits, and many others, helping them understand risk and build invincible brands that can withstand even the most devastating events. In 2015, she gave a TEDx talk in Los Angeles where she discussed the secret to successful crisis management in the 21st century. Agnes is the editor of the Crisis Ready blog, a contributor to Forbes, and a go-to source for the press, with recent coverage including the Wall Street Journal, Vibe Magazine, USA Today, and many others. As a university guest lecturer, Agnes teaches crisis management in university courses around the world, including at NYU and McGill. Welcome, Melissa Agnes. How are you? I'm so well, Lily. How are you? I'm doing well, and we are so happy to have you on our podcast. As you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm so ready. Yes. Great. All right. So, (laughs) Melissa, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Absolutely. My path to leadership is an interesting question for me to ask myself. Um, I think I've always had a strong sense of personal conviction that has always led me. I don't come from a line of leaders. My family is kind of the opposite. So I think that I've been lucky enough to be who I am that in the sense that I never conformed and I strived always for better for myself and then for others that I could help along the way. As a result, I suppose, because the result is where I'm at. So today I am an entrepreneur. I am very, very blessed in the work that I do. I work with leaders around the world, be it in government, straight through to you know Fortune 100 companies. And what I do is I advise from a crisis management, crisis preparedness standpoint, and I help organizations become crisis ready And I say that that builds brand invincibility. Crisis ready. I'm sure this speaks to the listeners as it spoke to me, how important that is, especially nowadays in our school systems. But I do want to touch on a couple of things you said. You said you never conform. No, I didn't. And I'm very grateful for that. Looking back, I realized that that took a lot of strength 
because mm-hmm. it's easy to conform. When mm-hmm. you are the odd one out and you haven't yet found your tribe or people that really resonate and relate to you mm-hmm. or you relate with, I think it's the simplest thing is to kind of just want to fit in, right? I think that's a quality in leadership that I think is necessary. We can go with the flow in certain occasions, but to not conform and to want better is an important leadership quality. But you also said something that really speaks to my heart is that you better yourself. You were very intentional about that and also helping others, which is adding value to others. So I really appreciate you talking about that. So how would you describe your leadership style? Authoritative and kind. Oh, okay. Authoritative. I need to be authoritative. I advise world leaders in very complex and difficult situations. So I need to be authoritative. And I've worked on my leadership skills in that regard, especially when I started in this profession. I was in my mid and late 20s with some very, very strong responsibilities or challenging responsibilities. And I needed to not come across as what you see is a young blonde attractive woman, right? I needed Mm -hmm. to be authoritative and and establish that authority. And then the continued side of that, let's say, is kindness is everything. Mm -hmm. Empowering other people is when I feel like I'm my best self, uh, when I get the opportunity and the chances to make other people feel better about themselves and help them in any way, you know, that I possibly can to help them become their better selves, their best selves, and just kind of live the life that is true to them. So yeah. So I like the kind piece, but typically having an authoritative leadership doesn't land well with people. Why is that type of leadership very important in your line of work? Let's put it into context. Crisis management is very complex. And there's a lot at stake for an organization, for people, whether you're dealing with, I have cities and municipalities as an example that are clients of mine. And there's specific cities that are prone to different types of natural disasters. And I help them be in a position to better communicate with their communities in drastic times. If I'm not authoritative, and I don't mean it as dictatorship, like I don't want it to lead to a negative connotation to the word. I mean authoritative in the sense of credible and trustworthy and that I know with conviction of I know what I'm talking about and I'm able to lead my clients into effective crisis management, no matter the circumstance, in a way that leads to increased trust and goodwill and credibility and relationships in the brand. I need to be authoritative for that. Right. When I think of a crisis in a school, I want my leader to be authoritative in that regard because I'm putting trust in that person. They need to know what they're doing, especially with the students before us. So I get it. Thank you so much for digging into that. Now, Melissa, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? This one might not surprise you considering my answer to your first question. So it's a Mark Twain quote. This is probably my all-time favorite quote. Before I wrote a book, this was in my email signature, which now my book is in my email signature, but it is, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Mark Twain. Beautiful. Now I heard that you wrote a book. I did write a book. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Happy to. (laughs) Um, My book is called Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. And it is everything that I have learned 
do with clients, my entire framework, my methodology, my ideology, it's all within this book. So I'm very, very passionate about what I do and what the value that it provides organizations of all different kinds. And I also realized that two things. One, I can't work with every organization just because it's not possible. And yet I really do believe that every organization deserves to be crisis ready, deserves to have brand invincibility. All of their stakeholders deserve to be put first. Being crisis ready is about people above process and bottom line always. And then the other thing was that there exists books on crisis management. And as passionate as I am on the subject matter, the majority of those books put me to sleep. Mm. And I feel like that does a disservice to the value that we can provide as crisis management professionals to our clients. So I did everything in my power with this book from the way that I wrote it, the stories that guide everything that are just, it's filled with stories and it reads more like a novel untold than a crisis management book straight through to the way that I designed it. It's a two color print so that it's just more engaging and more fun to read. So I did everything that I possibly could strategically to create an experience with this book for the readers that would hopefully empower them and excite them and motivate them to actually take action and take steps towards becoming crisis ready. Now, if our listeners wanted a copy of this book, where could they get that? Amazon. Best place. Yes. Crisis ready. You know, I can hear your passion. Why did you select this kind of work? Typically, there's a pivot point, right? Where we find our passion. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. It's interesting because over the last few months, I've really started to realize that it is just ingrained in who I am. Like I am living the life that I'm supposed to live and I'm serving the way that I'm supposed to serve. The way that my brain works since I was a kid, I see risk everywhere. I see then mitigation strategies for that risk. And then I go a step further and I see opportunity in the mitigation. That's the pattern that my brain works in. And when I was a kid, I mean, I remember so many things. I must've been such a drag for my little sister. (laughs) (laughs) Very intense, I bet. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just opportunity and mitigation and that's all positive, but seeing risk is, you know, you have to, in an instant way out, is it worth the risk? And sometimes, you know, going to the movies with my dad wasn't worth the risk (laughs) as a seven-year-old child, uh, which is not very normal. I realize now. Um, but yeah, so actually I've been an entrepreneur my entire adult life since I was 21 and about just almost a decade ago, I was doing social media strategies and website development and branding online and all that at a time where brands were just starting to realize the need to be on social and the wonderful opportunities and advantages that social media and two-way communication and real-time comms, they presented to organizations. And I remember I was doing that work that had great clients. And one day it just hit me like a light bulb going off. I remember the moment and I just went, oh my goodness, why is nobody addressing the risk? The risk of real-time communications, the risk of you know social media and all of these different things. And then of course my brain went to, there's ways to mitigate that risk. And then there's so much opportunity in that mitigation because yes, it's more challenging today to face a negative event because things go viral and there's you know stakeholder demands and expectations are, the threshold begins at a much higher level. But the flip side of that is that when you're ready for it, when you're crisis ready, then there are so many amazing advantages and opportunities that we never had before, such as 
in the event of a catastrophic, terrible crisis, we have the capacity today to reach our stakeholders directly in their pockets, to filter through all of the noise and to communicate with those that we need to communicate, whether it's to save lives or whatever the case may be, depending on the crisis. And I just didn't understand in that moment why nobody was talking about it. And I think that it hit home with me because of the way that my brain works. And it just resonated. And for a year, I would read everything that I could on the topic and subject of crisis management, which before that moment, I didn't even know existed as a profession. And then about a year into my quote unquote studies, I had a client, we had just launched their website. They were a real estate investment trust. And the VP called me very early one morning, frantic, saying, that their president was in the car with a prospective investor. The radio was reporting that one of their buildings was about to explode. It wasn't true. Investors were calling in concerned. Apparently the rumor started on Twitter. They had no idea what Twitter was, but they heard it was an online thing. And since we had just launched their website, they thought to call me. So I went in and, you know, lucky for everybody. I went in and within a half an hour, I had the media correcting themselves. I had investors gaining access to the right information because it was all happening on Twitter. Investors weren't on Twitter. Long story short, I got a call from the president the next day saying not only did their unit price not go down since the day before, but it actually went up a cent and he was extremely grateful. And it was in that moment that I realized people companies need this and I can serve in a way that is of such substance and value to organizations and nobody was doing it. So I had a partner back then and I looked at him and I said, I want to jump. There's something here. And he said, okay, let's do it. I didn't have a big marketing budget. I was a young entrepreneur. So I decided that I was going to blog five days a week, which I did for a few years. And I was just going to start raising questions that I felt organizations needed to be asking and I would provide answers to based on my perspective and my experience and my viewpoint of the world. And right place, right time. I was one of the first blogs in the world to that extent to be doing that. And a lot of crisis management professionals with long-standing careers and amazing clients came and said, you know, we're not sure if this whole social thing is a fad or a trend and how long it's going to last. And we don't necessarily want to learn it because we're nearing retirement, but we're smart enough to know that our clients need it now. Can we partner? And that is how I began in the career path, the journey that I'm in. Wow. And you know, Melissa, we're going to veer majorly from the questions that I have because I have so many other questions. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm listening and I'm learning and I continue to learn to listen. But one of the things that I listen for is your leadership, what comes out from your heart as you're talking. And these are things that occur to me. You occur as someone that's very curious. I am. Um, you're obviously a risk taker and incredibly creative. Thank you. Because to see opportunity in risks calls for creativity, but also people typically panic when there's a crisis. You don't. No, I don't. <laughs> this is your space. This is where you thrive, right? This, this is, and it makes sense to me. I see the pieces and I see the best analogy that I can give is Picture a jigsaw puzzle of, I don't know, 2,500 pieces and just take the box, this brand new box filled with all of these pieces and throw it into the wind, um, open, <laughs> throw it open into the wind. <laughs> and becoming crisis ready is about first finding all of those pieces and then putting it 
together and creating this beautiful jigsaw puzzle. That is how I see crisis preparedness and crisis management. And for whatever reason, like I see the way that they fit together. I see where the pieces are and how they fit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the best analogy that I can give. I'm not great at analogies. <laughs> I mean, most people would panic, but not you. You're very cool. Like this is your space. This is where you thrive. And it makes sense why you're so successful in this area. Now you said you blog, but you also have a podcast. Tell us about that. So I used to podcast once a week. I did that for about a year. Now I kind of do it ad hoc when I'm having really interesting conversations with new people. And I think, oh my goodness, other people need to hear this conversation. So I stop right. it and we record. But actually I'm about to kick off. I'm going to start podcasting regularly again. And I'm actually really excited about it because I know that people love podcasts and there's so much you can share and there's so much you can, mm -hmm. you know, tangible advice and strategies and tips and that, that you can share through podcasts. So I'm excited about that. Right. Can you tell us where people can reach you if they want to? Absolutely. It is melissaagnes.com. Well, that's simple enough. melissaagnes.com. Yes. Okay. Some things that came up for me because we're in a situation or we see this often, almost every day now, certainly every week, which is sad. We're seeing the crisis in schools. Yeah. What is your perspective on that? And how can we as schools best prepare? Oh, you're right. The risk with schools is you're dealing with the key stakeholder children and their families and children's safety and security is, I mean, there's no words to describe how important that is. And then add to that, you're mentioning that, you know, people get hysterical or emotional in crisis. Your work is children and there's no emotional tie that's deeper. So therefore crises get magnified exponentially at the impact of them. The first place to begin is to define what an issue versus a crisis is for your institution. Because one, it's not the same for every organization, those definitions. And two, understanding the difference allows you to respond appropriately in the heat of the moment. And then once you have those definitions is to take a look at what are the most high impact issues and crises that the organization, that the school is most vulnerable or prone to and list those out. And they're pretty simple once you have those definitions, especially with the way that the world is right now and the things that we're seeing constantly in the news and just what's happening in you know, real life. And then when you have each of those lists, the next step is to identify who are your stakeholder groups. So you definitely have your students, you definitely have your faculty, you definitely have your parents, you definitely have the media, you have the general public, you have the school board, you have lawmakers and law enforcement. So you have these different stakeholder groups. And in each one of those high risk scenarios that you've laid out, you can then say, all right, in crisis scenario one, what is the most important thing to do and to communicate with our students? What will parents expect of us? What will be their main concerns and how can we put our team in a position to be prepared to anticipate those expectations and those concerns and meet them? So if you go down that list of each and every high risk, high impact, most likely issue and crisis, and compare and contrast that list and ask yourself those questions with each one of your stakeholder groups, that gives you a path towards becoming crisis ready. Becoming crisis ready means that the entire team 
knows what risk looks like. They understand how to quickly assess the material impact of that risk on people and the brand. And they know how to respond instinctively in a way that actually increases trust and credibility in the organization. And doing this exercise gives you a powerful advantage in being crisis ready and being able to do each of those things. Melissa, that's such valuable information, and I appreciate you sharing that. It's my pleasure. So have you worked with schools? I have on both sides. So I do a lot with schools as institutions and organizations, and I also do a lot with professors and students, like as a kind of an adjunct professor, and the book is being adopted into course curriculums around the world. And so, yes, I work on both kind of sides of that. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Master Leadership at Schools podcast program will help prepare your students for any future they encounter. Teachers and students learn effective leadership and podcasting skills to create a platform that's an incubator for leadership, innovation, collaboration, and creativity. See this in action at masterleadership.org forward slash MLS and find out how to bring this to your organization. That's masterleadership.org forward slash MLS. What's the best advice you've ever received? To me, this is a hard question, but it brought me back to maybe it's not the best advice I've ever received, but it was one of the first pieces of advice that I was ever given. And it comes from my grandmother who told me to keep my shoulders back and my head up. And if I'm not feeling happy to smile anyways, because Mm -hmm. my mood will change. It stayed with me. I think it goes to mindset and outlook. Yes, I can see that. A very wise grandmother. Yes, she is. It's funny, as you said, put your shoulders back. I did. <laughs> there you go. Head up and smile. Oh, and smile. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I'm sure you've been part of teams. You've created teams. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? A good team, what it means to me is having a group of people who are highly competent, who are driven, who share your values, and who are loyal. How to build one, and I think it's trial and error over time, but what I've come to learn is that I'm somebody who knows what I want, always. If I don't, actually, that is my definition of hell (laughs) when I'm undecisive. So so you know what you want at all times. I do. Like I'm very self-analytical, and I'm very self-aware. So what I've learned is to know what I want and to be unapologetically honest from the start. I don't like surprises and I don't like to give surprises. I like expectations to be understood from the get-go. And I know that I am very driven and quality is very, very important to me in all aspects of my work and my branding and my work with my clients and all of that. So to set that bar right from the start, and then it goes to, you know, once you have that is leading with kindness and continued honesty is kind of what I've learned. And the best example I can give is actually with my publisher. To write this book, I interviewed six publishing companies and I put them each through like three rounds of, <laughs> of challenge tests that they didn't even realize were tests. And well, you were priming them. That's all. I was. Absolutely. But, and if I think back, because I've recommended my publisher you know, dozens of times since, and people say, well, how did you get the results that you wanted? So thinking back, it was really about making sure that people understood what my vision was and what my standards are and what I expected from the relationship. Mm -hmm. as well as what I would give to the relationship. 
And then every step of the way, and I said that Crisis Ready is a two-color print, I sat down with not just editors, but my publisher's design team on blocks of two hours, probably half a dozen times, and went through every single page because it's a two-color print. So it needed to be like aesthetically beautiful. And every single page, looking at spacing, looking at color, looking at font, looking at why is this space not an equal that space? And okay, let me also say that, yes, I'm that person, but I'm also really fun to work with. <laughs> so I have a great relationship with my publishers. But as a result, at one point I was doing a gig for Hilton. I'm a public speaker and they wanted advanced copies of the book. So we had a deadline. I was doing a gig in front of about a thousand people, leaders of Hilton's all sweet brands. And we needed to get advanced copies to Hilton so that I could get books into each of these attendees' hands. So we had this deadline. And at one point I ended up calling my project manager at my publishing company at house. And I said, you know, what's going on? We're nearing the deadline. And her response, I'll never forget it. She said, Melissa, we received copies. I knew it wouldn't be to your standards. We have sent out, we got a different supplier. We're having them reprinted. We will not miss this deadline. They're on schedule to be at Hilton's office by the deadline. The fact that those books did not come to me and they certainly did not go to my client and that my team at Mascot Books knew me and respected me that much to say she's not going to be happy and that's not on par with her brand. And they took that initiative upon themselves and they still met that deadline. That meant the world to me that they did that. Mm. But in order to get that relationship, I think that looking back, it's really about setting that bar at the beginning, being really, really great to work with also, not being somebody that people dread. That's the balance. That and that's that easy. authoritative and kind. I think that it's a really nice combination when you can master that. Not saying that I mastered it. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. constantly evolving and improving every day. But the fact that my client did not get something that I would not have felt confident to stand behind. And the fact that time, it wasn't taken from me to make that decision, that they just knew that and that they took the initiative just meant the world to me. And as a result, like Mascot Books is an amazing publisher. And I shout from the rooftops how great they are because of this, because of who they are and their commitment to their clients, which is me. Yeah. And they took the time to get to know you. Yes. Well, Right? Yes. So, you know, I'm writing down how thorough you are, competent, driven. How are you when you come across people? And again, most of our listeners are in educational organizations. And we can't always pick our team. But how do you deal with the tension when you encounter people that can't make decisions quickly the way you do? Ask questions to help them determine their answers. Hmm. So, you said earlier that you presumed that I'm somebody who's very curious. My favorite word is the question why. I was recently asked, what's your favorite word? And it really is my favorite word. And then when you ask why, you can for yourself better understand yourself and where you want to go and make smart decisions. But for others, if you help them ask why, just keep challenging that question and getting them to self-assess and assess situations and better understand where they're coming from and why they're feeling the way that they're feeling or you know, whatever the case is, you can help them. I'm an advisor and I have to give advice, but really it's about helping people understand and get to their conclusions while you guide them to see all perspective, all risk of the situation. So it's coaching in it, essence. It's probably a hybrid. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Now, Melissa, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life? 
oh my goodness, as a human being, we have so many challenges. Mm -hmm. Now, how personal do you want to get? (laughs) Whatever you want to share with us. Okay. I would say my little sister. My little sister, her name is Stephanie. She is a, for lack of a better word, a troubled soul. She is a kind soul, but she is troubled. And I took custody of her when I was 18. She was 15 Mm. and have constantly, I suppose, been there to help crisis manage her and her life. And the biggest challenge that I had was when I was 25 and she was 22 and I needed to come to terms with the fact that I can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. And I had to still have to kind of stand back and just let her lead her life knowing that she's not ready for my help and there's nothing I can do as a result. That is actually the hardest lesson I've ever learned. Mm, That certainly touches my heart because we encounter situations like that. And that is difficult, especially if you're someone who is thorough, likes to see results, has that authoritative way about them. And emotion is involved. I mean, this is my kid sister whom I have a very strong connection with Mm -hmm. um, that is, in fact, is not really in my life anymore just because I couldn't watch her put herself through the things that she puts herself through. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, the hardest decision and lesson I've ever learned. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate it. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? I wouldn't call my book a success just yet because it's new, but it is the thing professionally that I am the most proud of. Mm. And I've done some cool things thinking back in my career, but this is a thing that I am the most proud of. Yeah, I would say you've accomplished something that a lot of people want to. You know, how many people have you heard say, yeah, I'm going to write a book and I've sat down to write a book, Melissa. That's not easy. And the fact that you completed that, it's certainly a success. So thank you. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? Who constantly learning. What it means to me is that they are smart people (laughs) who I suppose that are self-aware and strive to be the best version of themselves every day proactively. What am I learning now? Constantly learning. Right now, it's actually personal learnings. I'm going through a divorce and from a relationship that I've been in since I was 20 years old. And he and I are have a, a mutual respect for one another. He's an amazing human being. We just kind of realize that we aren't in love anymore. And just the journey of being, I've always been very self-aware But it's a different thing when you have to contemplate your reasons or your thought process as a solo person, rather than you ask yourself, was that a couple's decision or is that really how I feel? Like if it was just me and it is just me. So I think that that's the thing that I'm really learning right now is I'm kind of learning a new side of myself. That's very exciting and very empowering. Now, you've mentioned self-aware several times. Hmm. What's some advice that you can give people who are starting their journey and starting to figure out that this is an important thing to do? To be self-aware? Oh my goodness, it changes your life. And self-aware with action. When I was younger and going through hard times, I would tell myself that helping myself and you know getting over whatever it was that I needed to get over personally 
is an everyday commitment. There's no holidays, there's no weekends. You don't take that time off. However, I would also tell myself that if I do it every day and whatever do it is, you know, whatever the personal challenge is in that moment, one day it won't be a commitment or an intentional action anymore. It'll just be a part of who I am and that's who I want to be for whatever purpose. And that is very true. And I think that being self-aware, if you have that as an objective, I want to be more self-aware than taking mindful actions every day to be, eventually you will just become. At the beginning, it'll be homework. It'll be work. It'll be intentional and purposeful. And a year down the line, it'll just be a part of who you are. And to me, what that means is constantly checking in with myself. I mean, we all experience these moments where it's like all of a sudden, maybe you're having a great time and then all of a sudden you're not happy anymore or you're not necessarily not happy anymore, but something's bothering you. Check in with yourself and say, what just happened? And why am I feeling this way? And what does that mean? If you're out and doing stuff, you don't have to answer those questions now, but keep them on the back burner and actually ask yourself those difficult questions while being kind to yourself, right? No judgment is allowed is because you can fix whatever you would judge yourself on. You can fix and you can become the better version of yourself or a better version of yourself. So yeah, I think that for me, that's what it is. It's a constant check-in asking myself, why am I feeling this? Why am I thinking this? Why was my reaction that? What does that mean? I told you that why is my favorite question. And what does that mean in alignment with the person that I am and want to be? And then I give myself tasks and challenges. Like right now, I'm a very logical person. I don't feel comfortable with negative emotion. I'm never angry and I don't like to be sad. That's not healthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like I'm so right now, my personal mantra, because that's my personal challenge uh, right now, is to allow myself to feel sad when I do and to allow myself to be angry if I feel it or if I should feel it. And what I tell myself is that being vulnerable is actually a strength. It's not a weakness. Mm -hmm. And allowing myself to feel anger is a kindness towards myself. That's my personal mantra. But that took a few months of self-assessment to realize that I had these difficulties personally, and then to figure out, okay, who do I want to be? And I want to be somebody who is stronger in these areas. So what does that mean? And it's a constant work every day. Hey, if I feel sad, I'm allowed to have a tear. Right, right, <laughs> That's okay. Right. That's a strength, right. not a weakness. And that's a long-winded answer to your question. And it, of course, it brings up more questions for me. But one <laughs> of the biggest questions, because what I wrote down is intense. You're intense. You're very, you are very self-aware and you're not easy on yourself. You don't, cut yourself slack, except you're learning to do that, right? Yes, I am. Um, so the question is, why all that work? My definition of success is intrinsic happiness. I want to feel, and I think that that has to do with the reason that I don't like to feel sadness or anger. For me, success is not about money. It's not about accomplishment. I mean, that all plays into it, but I want every moment of my life to be just a joy. And not every moment can be a joy, but to the most extent possible, I want intrinsic happiness. Everything I do is in relation to will it bring me happiness and will it make me feel happy, truly, truly. I think that I've just been through my own personal obstacles in the last almost mm -hmm. year. And I realized that if I don't allow myself to be sad or if I'm suppressing anger, 
then that's not really happiness, right? Like then I can't get over it and I can't right. get to the other side. We get the opportunity and the power to shape who we are. We get the power and the opportunity to shape our view on the world and to constantly evolve and grow as human beings. And that is a beautiful part of life. And so this is my obstacle right now. In the past, it's been other things. And in the future, it'll be something else. I don't think the journey ends until it's over. But I do definitely think it's worth it for my, the quality of my life. And one last question here. You do a lot of things to be self-aware, but do you get help? Is there a go-to person? Do you have coaches, mentors? Yes, absolutely. I have coaches. I have mentors in different areas. And then I'm also pretty good at challenging myself and getting to the root cause of things myself. And then that's when I'll find somebody who inspires me or who I really, really admire for a specific reason and learn whatever I can from that human and those humans, because there's never just one. Great. Thank you so much for that. Now, Melissa, if there were something you could change in education, what would that be? Oh my goodness, there's a few. And they're all positive. One thing I would change, I'm just going to go with what I'm so passionate about and the work that I do and the value that it gives. It's to be crisis ready. There's no excuse right now to not be, especially for educational institutions. I mean, today, the time that we're recording this last week, there was another shooting at a high school, Santa Fe High School. There's risk everywhere we live in a world of heightened risk. And a lot of the risk and its impact are beyond our control. That's 100%. But there are things that are in our control and those things need to be acted on. And I'm glad you went there because I think you're spot on. Sometimes we can be so busy with very important things that we don't give this the focus and the energy that it needs. And sometimes it can be challenging. I mean, I have a new client that I've just onboarded and they're part of the athletics department of a university. And they came to me and they said, we are crisis managing every day, all the time, that it's taking all of our attention and all of our resources that we are always playing catch up. We're never able to be proactive because there's always something. Can you help us be proactive? Can you come in with your expertise and just help us? And I loved that because that's the mindset of we don't want to be behind all the time or playing catch up or just being reactive. We want to be proactive and I completely feel for them and understand the reality is that they can't, not because they choose not to, not Correct. because they're sitting down and you know not doing the right thing, but because this is their daily job. But yes, absolutely. There are people that can help you be proactive rather than reactive. And it's so important, especially in this industry in particular, yeah. and there's no excuse. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Now, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well and why? Well, there's a few really good books that have just come out, three off the top of my head, that the core message will probably resonate with listeners. One is Attention Pays. The author's name is Mean James. A great book on helping us kind of realize that the norm right now is that our attention is everywhere. Everything takes our attention. Mm -hmm. And if we are conscious about where we put our attention, that attention actually pays. It pays in relationships you know, with stakeholders, it pays in actual bottom line and reputation, all these wonderful things. 
Company Culture for Dummies by Mike mm-hmm. Anino is another really, really great book. Being crisis ready is cultural. So Mike's book on company culture and just kind of how to be that best culture and just kind of implement mindset and all of that is a powerful message with a lot of great takeaways for any organization. The other one I think that was off the top of my head too is Never Lose a Customer Again by Joey Coleman. And it's not necessarily about customers, but it's about relationship, right? Mm. So how to provide the best service and retain the best long-term relationships. So that one. Okay, great. So Melissa, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? When I'm home and I'm not traveling, mm-hmm. I do probably on average about 45 minutes of playing piano with my morning coffee every morning. And that's my me time. It sets mm-hmm. the tone for my day. It opens up my creativity and it kind of just allows me to breathe before I embark on what is usually a 12 to 14 hour workday. <laughs> so. I love that. Coffee and piano. Yes. I've always wanted to learn to play the piano. I think it's such a beautiful instrument. Me too. And two years ago, I decided that I would. What? I'm not very good, but yeah. And I love it. On so many Melissa, levels. I'm connecting with you on so many levels. Oh, that's um, awesome. The coffee, the piano, the intensity, the strive to be self-aware and to be the best version of myself. So all those things. Wonderful things. Beautiful things. Yes. I appreciate that. Okay. If you can go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? So I would change nothing because I believe that every experience shapes us and I am who I am and where I am because of my past. Mm -hmm. So I think that if I could go back in time, it wouldn't necessarily be advice, but it would be encouragement and empowerment. And I would just tell myself to keep going and it's going to be worth it. Love it. Love it. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed? such a powerful, everlasting, shaping opportunity, responsibility, relationship. Like I love the work that I do with professors and with educational institutions. I think that for 99% of the time, those leaders are in those positions from pure passion and drive to help and to shape. And they understand for the most part, the power and the opportunity that they have. I think that it's going to go back to just there's no excuse to not take that mindset in that position, whether you're a teacher directly dealing with students or you're part of you know the administration. There's so much that can be done to prevent the preventable and prepare for the unpreventable in a way that translates into everything from empowering beautiful souls to be the best version of themselves straight through to saving lives. And I really don't think there's an excuse not to just start thinking about it. And it's simple. I mean, I gave, you know, some kind of linear things, of course, is, you know, identify issue versus crisis, identify your high risk scenarios, understand your stakeholders. Just taking that small action will take Mm -hmm. you a giant leap towards becoming crisis ready. And it's not that difficult. And yet it's so, so, so powerful. So I think that I'd like to leave with that message. Melissa, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. It has. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. 
Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.